You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 238 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode we are going to be joined by, in my opinion, the main authority on the concept of basic income alive in the world today, Professor Guy Standing. I recently featured his work and concepts regarding basic income in episode 228, 10 episodes ago, if you want to check that out. For those that don't know, basic income is basically a government guarantee that each citizen receives a minimum income. The intention behind the payment is to provide enough to cover the basic cost of living and provide financial security. This could mean that Workers could afford to wait for a better job or better wages. People would have the freedom to return to school or stay home to care for a relative. The poverty trap would be removed from traditional welfare programs. And citizens could have simple, straightforward financial assistance that minimizes bureaucracy. And the government would spend less to administer the program than with traditional welfare at least in theory, at least what I think anyway. There are many benefits to basic income. I for one am behind this idea. Anything but the current system we have today is a good thing in my opinion. So I am very pleased to have an expert on basic income on the show today, Guy Standing. In a few instances, Guy Standing mentions the precariat And in order for you to enjoy this discussion with Mr. Standing, you need to know what the precariat is. Basically, in sociology and economics, the precariat is a social class formed by people suffering from precarity, which is a condition of existence without predictability or security, affecting material or psychological welfare. But before I play this uh, episode talk with Guy Standing. Let's hear him explain in a few minutes who the precariat are in our society. The precariat is a class in the making, in the Marxian sense, if you like. And that means that it's still internally divided. The first part are people who are falling into the precariat from old working class communities. Their parents were shipbuilders or dockers or, or steelworks. Or they had a, a certain working class status. This part, they don't have a lot of education and they're looking backwards and they're not getting what the past gave. So they're angry, they're alienated, they're anomic too. And this part is voting for the Donald Trumps. Okay. This part in Britain voted for Brexit last year. This part will vote for Marine Le Pen, etc. Right? The second part of the precariat consists of people who are not looking backwards so much, but they don't have a present. They're nostalgics. They don't have a home. They don't have a home anywhere. Now this part keeps its head down, but every now and then the pressures get too great and they explode. These are the migrants, the Roma, the groups, right? The third part is the educated 
who went to university or college and they were promised a future, a career, an occupation, a profession. And they come out of university and they know they bought a lottery ticket. And the lottery ticket costs more and more and promises less and less. This part will not vote, as in 29, or in Trump, or in Brexit. They will not vote. But they are not being offered a politics of paradise. So when it comes to these big, nasty elections, a lot of them, they look and say, Whoa, David Cameron? Hillary Clinton? I don't like that. Certainly don't like Trump or, or Brexit, but them? And what do they do metaphorically? They stay in bed. And that's where we are today. But these new precariat movements that are growing, and they are growing, and we fully agree on this, are changing the politics because they're beginning with the energy to change it and define a new agenda for the precariat. And that is why I'm actually optimistic. Okay, now when you know what the precariat is, uh, let's listen to Guy Standing. He's a very busy man and I was fortunate enough to get half an hour of his time. Enjoy. So thanks for being on the podcast. Okay. Could you tell the listeners a bit about who you are and what you do? Uh, my name is Guy Standing. I've been a professor of economics at a number of universities. And I was director of socioeconomic security in the International Labour Organization. I'm the author of a number of books, including The Precariat, The Corruption of Capitalism, and Basic Income and How We Can Make It Happen. And I've been doing pilots on basic income around the world uh, over the last 20 years. And uh, a lot of people are talking to me about basic income, as you are today. There's going to be an election soon in the United States, and they are trying to choose which Democrat is going to run. And one of them is, um, uh, is called Andrew Yang, I think. He is talking a lot about implementing universal basic income. Of course, the mainstream media is making a joke out of him. Do you think he has a chance to explain this to a media that uh, looks at this concept in the United States as, as a stupid idea? I, I think it's remarkable that in the last five years uh, there's been a, a surge of interest in basic income from all over the world. For many years um, we set up Bien, Basic Income Earth Network. We set it up in 1986 and a group of young philosophers and economists and sociologists. And for many years we were ridiculed as utopian or communist or uh, all sorts of funny, funny names. But in the last five years, it's interesting that across the political spectrum, uh, including libertarians on the right and socialists uh, and uh, leftists uh, on the other side of the political spectrum, have come to realize that in their vision of a good society, uh, basic income is a feasible option. And I think what Andrew Young is doing in the United States is further legitimizing the, the concepts, the language, the 
imagery that comes with thinking about basic income. And and in that regard, I think he's doing a very good job. Initially, he didn't have much money. He was outsider. He's not a member of any uh, political dynasty in the United States. But I think he's been doing a fantastic job. Uh, he's an intelligent man and he's consulted with us. And, and I think he's a good spokesperson for the year. Of course, we don't expect him to win. But what he's doing is further legitimizing basic income as an option. And this is helping make some people who have been skeptical or frightened of of advocating it uh, have come out in favor. And I think this is this is where we stand at the moment. We've got pilots going on in various parts of the world. And I've been an economic advisor to John McDonnell in Britain, the shadow chancellor, the shadow finance minister. And he commissioned me to produce a report, which I did last month, so that that uh, we are now committed, uh, the Labour Party in Britain, the Labour leadership, to introducing pilots, experiments on basic income if they're elected in the next general election. I mean, this could not have happened five years ago. It's, it's really a, a, a change. And I think it reflects the breakdown of the old social de- democratic politics, the old Christian democratic politics. Politics of center left and center right are in a complete mess. The populists are rising on the right. And the income distribution system on which social democracy was based in the 20th century has broken down irretrievably uh, with more and more income going to capital, more and more income going to forms of rent, uh, ownership of property, physical property, financial property, and intellectual property most of all. And the old ability of wage earners to have enough in their wage packet to give them a decent life more and more people are in the precariat and are not going to get uh, a decent life solely from wages. And in that context, I think people are more open to thinking about basic income. And, and, and that is good news. The arguments people have against basic income, you've showed that they don't really hold up in your trials in poor parts of the world. But do do the challenges with basic income differ from a poor trial area or a wealthy one? I think the interesting thing is when when we started advocating basic income, everybody said, okay, well, that's possible in a rich country, uh, but it's not possible in a low-income country. How can you possibly give a basic income to everybody in a low-income developing country? Well, now I find that some people are making the opposite argument that you could introduce a basic income in in India where we've piloted uh, or in Africa, but you couldn't do it in a rich country like the Netherlands or Britain or the United States. Um, I think both uh, positions are wrong. I think it's quite feasible to introduce a basic income of a modest amount in a country like India where the government pays out something like eight or nine percent in subsidies that mainly go to the 
8-9% of GDP of national income in subsidies that mainly go to the middle classes and rich corporations, if you just diverted half of that, you could give every Indian, every 1.4 billion Indians, a modest basic income that would enable them to have dignity and pursue a good life. Not very much, but it would be it would be a hell of a lot better than now. If you were to take a rich country where, you know, a tiny number in the plutocracy are getting billions of pounds, dollars or euros, you could easily devise a, a better system in which recycling part of the rentier income that goes to the top 10% or whatever it is of the population without reducing their living standards by very much, uh, if at all, but you could divert it and easily pay for a modest basic income for everybody. It's affordable and it does require some structural changes, but we need it because at the moment poverty rates are rising, inequality is disgustingly high, and of course we can afford it. We're rich, we're richer now than at any time in history, and of course if we have the will and the desire, we can have everybody having a basic income, may not be very much, but it would be enough to give people basic security. And it, in the end, for me, the real justification of a basic income system is it's a matter of social justice. The income and wealth of all of us, you and me included, is far more to do with the efforts and achievements of many generations before us than anything we do by ourselves. However much we flatter ourselves, or how clever we are, it's actually due to the efforts of past generations, largely. And in that context, to say we should all have a social dividend, all have a little share of the collective wealth that's been generated, seems to me a matter of social justice. It was the, the argument used by Thomas Paine in a slightly different form. It's the argument used by William Morris. It's the argument used by a number of philosophers like Bertrand Russell and going way back to the Magna Carta and the Charter of the Forest in 1217. So for me, the justification for a basic income is a matter of ethics, a matter of morality, and the feasibility is a matter of will in the sense that we can raise uh, income uh, easily from the commons, where which is being usurped and taken by a tiny elite. They, those commons belong to us, our common resources, our land, our air, our sea, our waters. They all belong to us as citizens, as commoners. And in that regard, to have a share of that for everybody, everybody equally, is a perfectly feasible political trajectory, and all progressives, in my view, should should be promoting it. Today, what a country spends on uh, welfare, managing welfare, and also managing unemployment, and who gets what, and who doesn't get it, and making sure nobody's cheating. Uh, if you have a universal basic income, you don't need to do any of that. Uh, how much? How, how big a percentage do you think? Could cover the basic income from what they spend on all that other things for me it's a matter of a transition you have to see moving towards a basic income as a an anchor as a core of a new income distribution system there is no ideal level 
for the basic income. It's a matter of gradually growing it, gradually increasing it from a low level as the funding uh, is mobilized. What I've advocated in a new book, Plunder of the Commons, is I'm saying, look, the commons have been enclosed and privatized and taken away from commoners and a minority is making vast profits. We should have a levy system, a tax, if you like, on all uses of our commons and build up a fund, a national fund along the lines of the Norwegian fund or the Alaska permanent fund. And as it builds, we pay out uh, a basic income that would gradually rise as the fund uh, grows. Now, the, the amount uh, that's paid out um, can gradually be phased into a new fiscal system in which you phase out means-tested benefits that are costing a lot, administratively are hugely expensive, and are chronically inequitable and inefficient. What I mean by that is all means-tested schemes that exist all across Europe and in the United States and elsewhere, basically what they say is, we will give benefits only to those people who are poor. In order to do that, you have to have means tests to prove who is poor and who is not poor. And in order to do that, you have to say, well, supposing somebody is poor because they're lazy or choose to be poor, they should not receive benefits. That's the argument they make. And therefore, they introduce behavior tests so that the people have to leap, jump through hoops in order to qualify. Now, what happens with that, as we all know, there have been decades of research in many countries, is that huge number of people who should be receiving those benefits do not receive them. We're talking about half, half of the total or even more in many cases. That's the same in, in Scandinavia as it is in Britain or anywhere else. In addition, what happens is that you keep create poverty traps. What that means is that if you only give it to somebody who's poor, then if they make an effort and get a low wage job and cease to qualify, they lose the benefits. And what this means in effect is that those people face a marginal income tax rate of over 80%. That's the case in Denmark, in Germany, in Britain, in many, many other countries. And that, of course, acts as a huge disincentive for people to take low wage or low income uh, activities. And in addition, of course, it's what I call the precarity trap in my precariat books, is that if it, you're going to get a benefit at the moment, you have to wait a long time while you try and qualify, while you apply for the, the, the tests and you, you fill in forms. And often it takes several months between becoming eligible for a benefit and actually starting to receive it. Therefore, you would be mad to take a low wage precariat job that might last three or four weeks in those circumstances because you could very quickly find yourself without a job and back applying for benefits and waiting for several more months before you actually start receiving them again. Therefore, you would actually find that over a six month period, if you took such a job, you would be out of pocket in big time. 
And I think that the current system is is an exercise in cruelty, in madness. It's it's reached its ultimate madness in universal credit in in Britain. But uh, the Finns are going along similar way. The other countries have uh, drawn into the same thing. Uh, Clinton in the United States introduced in 1996, you know, the end of welfare as we know it. And that's gone in the same direction. So we, we have a, a real crisis in that the system that we have at the moment is coercive. It's inequitable. It's inefficient. It's costly and it's cruel. So for me, we're at the end of the road of all that direction. And I think a basic income is part of the future uh, income distribution system. And the last point I want to make on this is that we know that wealth inequality has grown enormously in all of the countries of people listening to this podcast. And in that context, wealth inequality is largely inherited wealth, which means that the people receiving that inherited wealth are have getting a lot of something for nothing. Now, one of the criticisms of basic income is that you can't give something for nothing. You know, got to go, can't give something for nothing. But at, this, at the moment, we have a system where we accept inheritance of private wealth, which gives a hell of a lot of something for nothing. People who receive that inherited wealth have not done a single day's work to get it. Now, if we accept that, then, of course, we should have a social inheritance with, through a basic income. I personally think it's grotesque that the amount of uh, inherited wealth is growing and growing and creating more and more inequality, and it has to be uh, modified and reduced. Not saying that some wealth can be inherited, that's fine, but at the, at the moment it is grotesquely excessive. What kind of... Uh person would qualify for it meaning that do you have can is it enough to be born or do you have to be 18 or do you have to move away from your parents or for me we're all commoners we're all citizens uh for pragmatic reasons rather than ideological or ideal reasons you would have to say that every man every woman and every child a lower amount for children should be receiving an individual basic income paid in cash or the equivalent each month. The only qualification I would make is because of pragmatic reasons, I would say that it should only apply to usual resident citizens. That means people who are usually living in the country and are citizens, plus those legally entitled migrants who have been in the country for at least two years. I don't say that with any uh, ideal philosophical justification, but merely a pragmatic rule so that you rule out the objection, well, you'd introduce welfare, tourism, etc. I think if you accept a migrant in your community, and I'm all in favor of that, you should treat migrants as equals once they've been in the country for a while. Doesn't mean you don't give any support for migrants and refugees uh, in those initial two years. That should be treated separately from the basic income system. 
You should give help. You should be helping. We should realize that the world is one world and we are ourselves in Europe partly the cause of the distress migration from Africa and elsewhere because we've been plundering their economies for hundreds of years and created the impoverishment from which they're running. But that, be that as it may, politically, we have to be realistic and we have to do it in, a, in an orderly way. And that's why I, I believe we have to have a, a, a pragmatic uh, rationale for who receives it. Currently, is there any trial going on that's more permanent, like that they're planning to like, well, we're going to keep doing this? Yes, in Alaska, they've been running the Alaska Permanent Funds, uh, handing out dividends to every resident in Alaska. And it started in 1982, and it's still going. Uh, recently, the the Republican governor of Alaska thought he would make himself popular by uh, cutting income tax to zero and then the revenues dried up and he raided the Alaska fund to, uh, to, to meet a, a, a fiscal deficit and he had to slash the dividend. He was so unpopular in doing that, the dividend is a basic income, and he was so unpopular that he was forced to resign his candidacy for re-election. And the, the new governor has committed to reinstating the full amount and paying out uh, each year. And he, he got elected on that basis. I think the Alaska Permanent Fund has certain advantages, certain limitations. It's, it's based on an oil fund, ways you don't need to to base the fund just on oil, you could you can enlarge it from other other commons uh, resources that that we have, but and I proposed how to do that in my new book. I I think also long-term schemes uh, in in North Carolina and elsewhere, where for several decades they've been providing uh, basic income to families uh, from the from profits from the casinos. I think that's a long-term plan that's been particularly successful. Uh, our pilots in India, where we provided thousands of people with basic income, men, women, and children, that had dramatic improvements in nutrition, in health, in schooling, in women's status, and in economic output and work. Work went up. It's contrary to critics. And the interesting thing is, after after we stopped the, the pilot, because we, we had a pilot for just two years and, and that was all we had money for, but we went back and did what we called a legacy survey several years after the end of the pilots. And what we found is that many of the changes that had taken, that had taken place during the pilot were sustained after uh, a, a, a threshold of, of an, sadness had been broken. For example, bonded labor, a lot of people use their basic income to escape from bonded labor and they maintained their independence after the pilot stopped. Women's status improved dramatically during the pilot because they had their own basic income and we found several years later that they had managed to retain their independence uh, once the, the taboos had been broken. 
the disabled were enabled to become full members of the communities with their own uh, independent activities and status and that that continued after the end of the pilot now i'm not advocating short-term pilots as the only answer but even short-term pilots can have huge positive effects what do you think needs to be done to make more countries uh, adopt the universal basic income more seriously more than just trials i think i think as i said in the launch of my report for john mcdonald last month which is live streamed i said one of the biggest challenges of those of us who believe that a new income distribution system is required and that believe in basic income we have to stand up and struggle for it and demand it and unite around it and i said one of the things that uh, we have to recognize is most politicians have spaghetti spines what i mean by that is that they don't often show great intellectual courage but when pressed they often will suddenly take a lead in that direction and i think we're at that stage with basic income i cannot tell you how many prominent politicians from many countries who've talked to me have said yes i, I agree with you but how can we do it and basically we've got to tell them you do it and i think we're moving to that stage where more of us are standing up and more po- young politicians are coming out with courage and realizing that the old ways will not work and new ways have to be advocated uh, we need to fight for that we need to be enthusiastic about it and i think we're getting to the stage where the precariat the group i've been writing about and meeting all over the place the precariat is mobilizing and moving to an ecological a progressive agenda one of the arguments that is very important for basic income is that it would help deal with the ecological crisis it would say that work that is not labor is just as valuable as labor we want to encourage people to spend more time caring more time doing voluntary work more time doing community work not resource using labor and i think that argument is going to be extremely important going ahead and that's why i say the the extinction rebellion which i fully support i think is linked to the agenda for a basic income where did the concept of basic income come from originally is it an old idea or a new one well i my my own view which i've expressed in my book a basic income and how we can make it happen is that actually the 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 roots of it uh, originate in the charter of the forest in 1217 and that was a radical uh, charter that a 10-year-old king didn't realize quite how radical it was when he agreed to it um but basically it says everybody in the community everybody in the country has a right to subsistence a right to a home a right to work a right to uh the commons and 
the environment has to be protected in that context. And I think that charter is the origins of the agenda which I support. And on that note, I'd like to end this podcast and, and thank you very much for, for interviewing me. Yes, thank you. And could you also tell the listeners if they want to where to find your books, if you have a website? Now, I have a website, uh, Guy Standing. All my books are published by uh, Pelican and by Bloomsbury. Uh, you can order them online. Uh, the, the latest one is called Plunder of the Commons, a manifesto for sharing public wealth. And that's out uh, in August. Uh, basic Income and How We Can Make It Happen is also published by Pelican. And the, the Precariat books are published by uh, Bloomsbury. Well, thank you a lot for taking the time to be on the podcast. Thank you very much. Cheers. Check out Guy Standing's website, guystanding.com. And also check out all his books. For example, Basic Income and How We Can Make It Happen. And The Precariat, The New Dangerous Class. If you want to support this podcast, you can easily do that and become a patron over at patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist. There's also a link on naturalbornalchemist.com so you can find your way over there easily. And it would really help. Give me a basic income for this free service and entertainment I provide. You can also write a nice review on iTunes or share the podcast in social media. Do what you can to help out. I work hard to give you these episodes and I appreciate any form of reciprocity. Now we are going to listen to the Gentlemen's Anti-Temperance League and their song Masquerade from the album with the same name. Check them out over at thegatl.com. Next week we are going to listen to the third part of my four-part series recorded at the World Ayahuasca Conference in Girona earlier this year. In this third part our feature act is none other than Dennis McKenna. See y'all soon. Freedom is in the mind. Aren't you tired of this positivity? Honeyed words and sugar cube tea. The sweetest breath you'd ever believe. Even the sycophants are sick of me. It's the same old story that the, the preacher told. The tired tale that leeches and those snake oil salesmen so good intentions are all we require. Love is all we need if we just give those salesmen all they desire. This faint compassion it leads. Bay in ice
tired of this positivity Honeyed words and sugar cube tears The sweetest breath you'd ever believe Even the sycophants are sick of me 